We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. Open your Bibles, turn to the book of Ruth. It's Old Testament, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, before 1 Samuel, okay? So find that. If you're doing it on your device, you can just be like, hey, Siri, open Ruth. I don't know if that works or not. But swipe or flip over to Ruth. We're starting a new book. We're gonna be in it this whole month, and we're just gonna do, it's only four chapters, so we're doing a chapter a week. Then what we're going to do is we're going to move into another book for October, and then a third book for November that will lead us all into Advent. And let me tell you where we're going before we really dive into Ruth with that. So as Anthony talked about with our blessed rhythms, and as we often talk about with Missio, we say we are blessed to be a blessing, right? This is what God said to Abraham when he first called him and said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And he forms Israel. And he says, and I will bless you so that you can bless the nations, And so we as God's people, we have been blessed by God and his good news through Jesus and being filled by his spirit so that we can go out and be a blessing to others. And this is what Israel was called to. And so what we see in the book of Ruth is a beautiful example of how someone outside of the nation of Israel that God had called is blessed and brought into the family of God. Then we are going to skip over to the book of Jonah. And I know that that sounds like a cute little like kid's story, right? With a a big fish, a whale and all that. But it's actually a story about how terrible Israel is at that call of being blessed to be a blessing to the other nations. How miserably they failed at it. How angry they are even when God actually invites the other nations in. Right? They're just awful at it. It really should cause us to start questioning ourselves. Like how good are we at that? at extending the love of God and the the blessing and the goodness of Jesus to others outside. And then we're going to go into the book of Malachi in November. And the book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It's the last of the prophet books. And it's a book that's basically showing, look, Israel, you have miserably failed at this. There's actually some discipline that's coming on you now. And it's right before what we call this intertestamental period. It's 400 years where God's just quiet. He's like almost giving his people the silent treatment, right? But it also is a book that's pointing us forward to, even though Israel was really bad at this, there's one faithful Israelite coming. One faithful Israelite who will do all this perfectly and will open up salvation and God's redemptive work and his rescuing to all nations, all people everywhere. So we're starting with Ruth, though, and Ruth actually gives us a little picture of what that looks like. We find it in a foreigner who is a widow, who is oppressed, who is barren, who is poor. And she reminds us of what Jesus is like. So in the book of Ruth, what we see is what's often told as this kind of side story of the Bible maybe even told just to like your, your kids' classes. And it's a story about faithful friendship usually, how it's been told. Or, or maybe it's a story about love, like finding your Boaz. If you haven't read the book of Ruth, you're like, what are you t- what's Boaz? What's a Boaz, right? You'll find out, right? But it's so much more than that. It's so much deeper than that. It's so much greater than that. It is, you can find 
just it teeming with the gospel, with the good news. And God allows this woman who is a foreigner, who is a widow, who is barren, who is oppressed, who is poor, to point us forward to what Jesus looks like. And I want us to remember that. Because what happens oftentimes when we come to this book, when we come to God's word, is we read it like it is directly spoken to us instead of reading it as the foreigner. Like, do you know, we're the foreigners in this story. This isn't written to America in 2020. God's people was an Eastern people thousands and thousands of years ago with darker skin than me. And they were an oppressed people. It was a different language. It was a different custom. It was a different time. And so when we come to this, I want us to remember we are the foreigners who were brought in. Israel did a terrible job of inviting in the other nations, but Jesus, Jesus has brought salvation and redemption for all peoples and allows all people to call the God of Israel our true God. And so he uses this woman, Ruth, to show what that's like. Often you've heard Missio say like, God is the hero of the story, right? Who's the main character of the story? Who's the hero of the story? We're always pointing to Jesus, to the Father, to the Holy Spirit. But we also talk a lot about how God has called us from the very beginning in creation to partner with him. And so this whole story from creation to restoration is a story of God, the main character, inviting the second supporting character, humanity, to partner with him to accomplish his work. And so in Ruth, yes, God is the main character, even though actually his name is hardly ever mentioned in the whole book. You can see God at work behind the scenes, but he's partnering with a secondary main character, if you will, and that is Ruth. It's not Boaz, the man. It's not even Naomi, the Israelite. It's Ruth, the Moab. So, Ruth chapter one. What I want to do is I want to read the first five verses. Then we're going to pause. I'm going to pray and then we'll dive more into it. Okay, sound good? So this is how we start off. The book of Ruth chapter one. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech. And his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. Father, we ask that as we read your word this morning, you would open up our hearts and our minds and our ears and our spirits to receive your word spoken to us. God, what you are trying to speak to us, what you are trying to do within us, may it be so by the power of your spirit and by your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We got through the worst of it, okay? Those first five verses are the story of tragedy, 
calamity, trouble, death, chaos. Those first five verses. In fact, many commentators have, have said that this story, Naomi's story in the first five verses, really should remind us of another character in the Bible, Job. Like Job, do you remember Job? He lost everything. He lost his wife. He lost all of his children. He lost all of his land, his possessions, his property. He, he lost his health. And it's this terrible tragedy story. And then like his friends come by and they're like, dude, you, should, you must've messed up or something. Like you must've sinned for God to let this happen to you, right? But the whole time he didn't sin. The whole time he, he might complain a little bit. He might whine a little bit, right? He sounds a little whiny, but the whole time he recognizes God is God. God is in control. And whatever he does is always good, right, and perfect. And a lot of commentators have said, Naomi is like the female Job. It's interesting though, we spend a lot of time looking at Job, right? And then this side story just kind of happens. But Naomi just lost everything. Everything. In those first five verses. But there's like 79 or so verses left. My two favorite words in all the scripture is, but God. And so the whole rest of the story is a story of, but God shows up. So let's get some context for this. It starts off by telling us during the time of the judges, if we were to flip back two books, I'm sorry, one book would be in Judges. It goes Joshua, Judges, Ruth. I got to sing that song in my head. We flip back one book, we're in the book of Judges. And what happens in the book of Judges is God rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt. Do you guys remember that story? Kids remember that story? They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. He rescues them out. Like he does some miraculous stuff to get them out. And he brings them across the Red Sea. And then he promises them, I'm going to give you a land. And it's a land of abundance. It's so good, you guys. You can't wait to get there. And so he brings them into this land finally after years and years of them turning their backs on him and not trusting him and disobeying him. Still, God comes through with his promise and he brings them in to this promised land, the land of Canaan. He brings them across the Jordan River and he settles them there. And while they're in that land, after God has rescued them, but before they ever come across King Saul or King David or any of those other kings, Israel is a nation for the first time, but without a king. And see, God wanted them to see that God was their king. All these other nations around you have a human king and look at what kind of mess they get themselves in. But Israel, will you trust me, God, to be your king? How do you think they do at that? Not very well. In fact, just like they did in the wilderness, after God rescued them before they got in the promised land, while they're in the promised land, they continue just completely disobeying God, completely disregarding his word, completely turning their backs on him, giving him pretty much a slap in the face saying, forget about you. I'm gonna do what I think is right. And in fact, that is the line that repeats over and over in the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Kind of sounds like our culture today, right? Like whatever is right for you, whatever is true for you. Well, this is how I feel right now about this, right? And so everyone was doing whatever they thought was good or right. And let me tell you, if you read the book of Judges, there's some messed up stuff happening. 
We don't have our kids' classes running right now, so I'm going to spare you from having to explain in the car what some of these words meant. Read it for yourself. There are some terrible things that Israel did to one another and to other nations during that time when they did what was right in their own eyes. Awful. And so God sends these judges to come along and kind of steer them in the right direction. Now, these aren't judges like you would see in a courtroom today. Think more of like a warrior, a warrior who leads people in what is right. A warrior who goes to battle and also settles disputes. Think kind of like, of like Judge Dredd. I am the law, you know? That's a super outdated reference, but I also see kids these days wearing Nirvana shirts and stuff, so I figured, you know, 90s is coming back around, so I can use that. If you remember that movie, Sylvester Stallone, Judge Dredd, but he was really like going out just like laying the smack down on people. That's kind of, kind of a contemporary of what these judges were like. So they would go in battle and get Israel out of trouble because they sinned against God and God allowed their discipline to be another nation coming in and taking control. So these judges would rise up, they would battle against them. There's several judges listed throughout that book. Some of them are good. Some of them are really bad. Even the good ones don't last, right? There's one judge in there, uh, Deborah in chapter four. Yeah, that's right. There's a female judge in there leading God's people. So go read that and let that prep you as we go into the book of Ruth this month, okay? She's one of the good ones, by the way. So it's a super fascinating story, but there is tragedy after tragedy taking place during this time. And that's what we know right off the first line of the book of Ruth. This is where this story is taking place in like the worst time of history for Israel. They are a mess and it's not even safe to be there. And so one of the things that God does to allow to happen to Israel, to bring his discipline on them, is not just nations coming and attacking, but there's a famine that happens. And so we read that in Ruth. This is what happens. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem. You know what's funny about that? There's so much wordplay in the book of Ruth. That word Bethlehem can be translated to house of bread. There's no bread in the house of bread. There's a famine. They got no food. And so there's a man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab. I wish I could tell you how Moab came into existence too without mixed company here. But it, it came through a perverted relationship between a man named Lot and one of his daughters. That's where Moab was born and that's where this nation came from. And Moab was one of the enemies of Israel. They were one of the nations doing battle against Israel when Israel was acting a fool. So they weren't friends. And he leaves his home because there's a famine. And he goes, maybe I can go find some food in Moab. And so he goes there for a while. The man's name was, verse two, Elimelech. It's Hebrew, so you gotta really pronounce that. Elimelech, which means God is king. That's a good name, right? I wish I had a strong name like that. God is king. Remember, there's some pretty amazing wordplay happening here. In the time where there was no king, when they were supposed to look at God as their king, but they didn't. Israel disregarded God as their king. This guy's name is God is king. And his wife's name was Naomi, which means pleasant. Again, another good name, right? So, so far this family is like, they got it down on naming people until this. 
Second part of verse two. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Again, you gotta get some. Malon means sickness and Kilion means wasting or wasteland. Could you imagine that? Like we thought for a while about naming our sons and sickness and wasteland did not pop into our heads. Like that would be, I would be so mad at my parents. I was mad at my parents for naming me Chris because there was always like seven other Chris's in my class. But at least I wasn't called sickness or wasteland, right? But in this time, names meant something. And names told stories. And, and the people of this ancient Near Eastern world, they would use names to talk about what had happened in their lives. And they were very comfortable, by the way, with this whole idea of grief and lament. We're not so comfortable with that, are we? Because as soon as something starts to feel a little sad or a little uncomfortable, what do we do? Pull up a distracting app real quick, right? I don't want to sit in my silence and think about that hurt. We immediately move to some kind of comfort to pull us out of it. But this, this culture was very familiar and comfortable with that. And so what they're saying is, our people are sick. And we're living in this wasteland here where there's no food because we have not regarded God as our king. You see, they're telling a story. So they leave and they go to this place, Moab. And Elimelech dies. Tragic. But hey, Naomi still has her two sons, right? And her sons marry. And so there's some happiness going on there. Of course, they marry Moabite women, which is not really cool. It's kind of taboo, but you know, whatever. We already live here, so you might as well just go for it. And they seem like nice girls. So things are getting a little better, but then her two sons die. Now, let me tell you why that's a big deal. Obviously, it's a big deal because you never want to lose a loved one. But let me tell you why that's a big deal in this book, in this history. Because women were not able to, in this culture, to go out and get a job the same way that we can today. Women were not able to support themselves in the same way that women can today. I know there's still struggle, ladies. I'm not trying to disregard that, okay? But it was a much different time. And in fact, the way that a female was taken care of in that culture, the way that a female survived in this world was you had a father who took care of you, and then you got married really young so you wouldn't be a burden to your father anymore. I'm not condoning this. I'm just telling you like it was. You get married really young, and now your husband takes care of you. Your husband works for you. And your job is to provide sons for your husband so that you have a retirement plan. There was no 401k. There was no savings investment. You had children who could work for you. And daughters, well, you could sell them for a dowry later, but that wasn't going to get you very far. So you had sons to take care of you in your old age. Naomi just lost her husband. Her dad's probably already long gone. And now she's lost her retirement plan too. Being a widow in that time was a dangerous thing. So what did you resort to? Well, you either become a beggar or you do some pretty unsavory things that people often look down on in order to make money and survive and eat. That was what you had to do. In fact, one of the characters in the story we'll meet later in the next chapter, his ancestor was a woman named Rahab. Maybe some of you are familiar with her. Rahab was the prostitute who actually sheltered some of God's people. 
And we look at that role that she played and we go, man, it's a good thing she turned her life around and started welcoming an Israelites, right? And we could look down on that position that she had, that job that she had, but it was the only way she could take care of herself because nobody else was taking care of them. Nobody else was taking care of widows. Even though God called his people, take care of the widow and the orphan and the oppressed, they were not doing it. So who would do it? In fact, they were doing the opposite. They were taking advantage of them. So now you got all this tragedy in the first five verses. Naomi's got nothing. And now she's got two new daughter-in-laws. When you married into a family in that culture, you were part of that property now. Like they, even though their husbands died, they were not released just to go do their own thing. They belonged to this household. So now she's got two other women. None of them can work. What do they do? But God, does that work still? So if we keep reading, I'm gonna read all the rest and don't worry, it's gonna go pretty quick. Listen to the story. You might even wanna just close your eyes and just soak in the story of what happens. So Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. Verse six, she and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living accompanied by her two daughters-in-law and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. And so she's releasing them right now. She's setting them free. Verse 10, they said to her, we insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters, go on. For I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? Pause real quick. That's a weird idea, but that's how you did in this culture. Remember, you belong to this household now. Your only hope was that there would be a sibling or some type of relative, male relative of your deceased husband who would then decide to marry you and now take care of you if they wanted. Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. Verse 16, but Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. Wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival and the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, she answered. 
for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. It's an incredible story. Sometimes when you hear about all the names and what they mean and how perfectly it ties in with the story, there's been some people who have suggested it's a made-up story. The reason we know it's not is because we get a genealogy at the end. You know what a genealogy is, kids? Yeah? You know what it is? Good. You guys are pretty smart. For those who may not know, there's probably some adults who don't know, genealogy is like your family tree, okay? And so my genealogy is my dad is Michael Preby and his dad and mother were these people and he just keeps branching off, right? So genealogy traces back, usually in Hebrew culture, ancient Hebrew culture, traces back by the fathers, by who these people were. And so we'll get to that in our last week and it's actually way more exciting than it sounds. Uh, But we know that it's historical. We also know it gives us a genealogy pointing forward who will come later through the line of Ruth. So this is a story that really happened. But in this amazing story with these names, Naomi being pleasant, she said, my life is no longer pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. It's kind of like, have you kids ever had like Sour Patch Kids? You know those commercials? First they're sour and then they're sweet, right? So it was like for her, it was the opposite. It was the opposite. It was like going from a nice cool glass of lemonade to biting into a sour lemon. She was like, my life was good. It was pleasant. It was sweet. Now it's bitter. God's allowed this to happen to me. I don't know why, but here we are. What she doesn't know is that God has already, just in the the rest of chapter one that we read right now, he has already started working to turn her life around from bitter into pleasant once again. He's already working a story of redemption and healing and salvation and rescue in life where there once was death. And that's the story of the God that we have. That's the story of the God that we have still today. That whatever is going on in your life, even though we don't see it, that there's God at work in his world. And we're going to see that unfold all throughout Ruth. And so she tells her daughters, no, no, go back. Why would you come with me to be a widow and suffer, especially to be a foreign widow, a Moabite in the land of Israel? They hate you there. So go. And of course, Orpah, not Oprah, right? Not the billionaire today. Orpah, by the way, the names actually come from the same root and they have the same meaning. And it means like fawn or gazelle. It's weird considering like how well all these things connect. What do you think of like a fawn or a gazelle? What do they do? They run really well, don't they? What does is, what is Orpah do in this story? She runs back home. Now listen, it doesn't sound like she made that big of a mistake. Like if I were in her shoes, I would do the same thing. She tried to go with Naomi. She was doing the honorable thing. And then Naomi's like, don't do this, go home. And she even like insists, no, let me stay with you. They weep, like she's grieving over it, right? She's not a bad person. And Naomi's like, no, 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 go home. This is not good for you. And so she does, she goes back home to her mother's house, but also 
to her family's gods. It's understandable, don't get me wrong. She's not a bad person, right? But this whole story so far has been a story of people, when things get hard, when God is there, they turn and run away. So you have Elimelech at the beginning of the story. This is the land I have given to you, my people. This is the land where I will dwell with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's the promise he gave them long ago. Do you know that? The promise he gave them was, I will be your God and you will be my people when he rescued them out of Egypt. And I will dwell with you in this land. And then there's this famine that comes because the people aren't faithful on their part. What does Elimelech do? Let's go, let's go to this foreign land where they worship other gods. Let's find some bread there. The whole story has been people running so far. So you get Orpah in the same position. This is hard. This is going to be difficult. I cannot go with you to go worship your God in that land he's provided for you. I, I can't trust that it's going to be good for me there. Let me return to my other gods, to my family here. And if we're just really honest with ourselves, don't we do the same thing all the time? God, I know you're calling me over here, but it's really, really hard. I'm going to suffer. Can I even trust that you're going to be there with me, that I'll be provided for? This looks safe over here, right? And what we don't often see, what seems pretty clear and plain as we read the story of Orpah, we don't see in our own lives. What we don't often see is when we're turning to go over here where it's safe, we're also usually turning to worship some other false god. We're turning to worship a god of comfort, consumerism, individualism, nationalism, self-pride, you name it. There's so many of these that we don't even see. God of money. Instead of following through the wilderness, through the barrenness, through the famine, a God who provides for his people. So then you get Ruth, and it makes no sense for her to go with her. Ruth's name means friend, or better translated, a faithful friend. And this whole story is a story of loyalty. Someone who is committed to and will stick with. And I don't just mean loyalty to a friend. Remember, this is pointing us back to a deeper truth. Ruth is a reminder to us, an, an archetype, if you want to use a bigger word, those who might be familiar, a, a type of, She's pointing us to what Christ is like. Now let me show you how. Remember we said, I have the verse up here, actually it's pulled up on the screen. Remember we said that God, earlier on, he told his people, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's on the next slide. There it is. This is quoted several times throughout scripture. And so God tells them this as he's saving them out of Egypt, as he's bringing them into their own land. He says, I will dwell and walk among you. That's the way it was in the beginning of creation, right? God walking among the first man and woman. I will dwell and walk among you like he's setting things right again. I will be your God and you will be my people. God is saying, I am committed to you. I am loyal and faithful to you. Where you go, I go with you. I am your God. You are my people. Paul quotes this later in 2 Corinthians. It's in Leviticus, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. It's 
all over. There's lots of other versions of that that don't say exactly those words, but the same idea littered all throughout scripture. Go to verse 16 with me. Naomi asks Ruth to leave, but Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Can you put the other verse back on the screen again, Kobe? Listen to this. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. It's as if Ruth is mirroring this promise to Naomi that God promised to Israel. And in doing so, she is actually entering into that promise as well. She is becoming part of this promise that God gave to Israel. She's coming with the response, the faithful response that Israel was supposed to give, and they failed at. And they turned away from that promise. They wanted to be their own people, to be their own gods, to have their own human king. Ruth responds faithfully. And in doing that, her faith allows her to partner with God to start to bring, oh, to start to bring redemption and healing and a story of salvation, not just for Ruth, not just for Naomi and her family, but for all of Israel and eventually all the world. I'm going to give you a spoiler, okay? I want you to skip to Ruth chapter 4. And I want us to read verse 17. The neighbor women said, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Do you know which David we're talking about? King David. This was, a, this was actually not a child that was literally born from Naomi. It ends up being Ruth's child. And because Ruth was committed to Naomi and stayed within her household, it's considered also a son of Naomi. She has a child later in the story. You're going to have to find out how. We'll fill in the blanks. But I skip to the end of the scene for you. And that child has another son named Jesse, who has a son named David, who ends up becoming probably the best king that Israel had as far as human kings go. But remember, in this story, who was supposed to be Israel's true king? It wasn't supposed to be a human king, was it? David becomes another one of these people who points us forward to a truer and better king, what Jesus really looks like. And who do we know ends up coming from the line of David in the town of Bethlehem many, many, many years later? The true king, Jesus. That when God promised, I will dwell with you, I will walk among you. Jesus moves down from the heavens onto this earth and with human feet, he walks among his people. And he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. Jesus does everything necessary, not only to continue this commitment relationship between God and his people Israel, but to also continue this commitment that they were supposed to uphold, which is to be a blessing to the other nations and invite them into this story. That Jesus opens up the story of salvation and rescuing and redemption and healing and life 
for all the nations. He is the true king. He's the one that Ruth is pointing us forward to. And he's the one who comes to walk and dwell among us. One more verse I want to show you. Let's jump to Revelation 21, verse 3. This is the picture we have at the very end of that story. That John, who's writing all this down, he has this vision, and he hears a voice from heaven say this, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Does that sound familiar? That promise is one day going to come finally and fully true, and it happens through the finished work of Jesus. And just like it cost Ruth nearly everything to stay committed to Naomi, it will cost Jesus everything, including his life, to stay committed to his God and his people, to be faithful to the redeeming work of the whole world. But he wins. He accomplishes it. He's faithful to it, and he sees it through. And one day, that's the hope that we have to look forward to, that we will dwell eternally with God in the land of abundance, and he will be right there with us. He will be our God, and we will be his people. Amen? And if we have that hope, and listen, if we truly have that hope, not just we hear it on a Sunday morning and we go, cool, I feel a little better about today, but if we really hold on to that hope and we stop turning to other things when it gets difficult, but we stay committed and near We can partner with the Spirit of God in doing this work. We can partner with him in this story like Ruth did. We can partner with the Spirit of God in bringing this hope and this blessing to the nations, to the people around us, to our classmates, to our coworkers, to our neighbors. Would you pray with me that we would do that?